0: You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor, Gare Jones. Well, we are in a series starting to dig into the Old Testament together. I said last week that many of us, like myself, have wrestled with the Old Testament. We've struggled with it. How do you read it? It seems strange at times. It feels uh, different at times to the New Testament, what is going on here? And so, over this next year, we'll take opportunities to dive into the Old Testament a bit together. And we're going to begin with the Book of Ruth. Now, someone said to me this week, Dude, Gare, if you've got challenges with the Old Testament like I do, yeah, you know, don't go for the easy stuff like the Book of Ruth. And I said, look, we're going to enter into it gently, and then we'll go to some other more challenging areas later on throughout the year. But this morning we're looking at the book of Ruth. And just to recap how we are to read the Old Testament, and really just to kind of simplify it as much as we can, to understand and enjoy and love the Old Testament, we have to ask two questions whenever you're reading a book of the Old Testament. These two questions are on the screen. The first is, what is the original meaning? What did it mean to the original author and the original audience? What does it mean to them? God revealed himself to them. And so how did he reveal himself to them that we can understand how also he reveals himself to us? Then the second question is, how does does this point to Jesus and the gospel? So Jesus says in Luke 22, look, if you read me, if you know me, you'll see that I'm all over the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is pointing toward me. It's one unified story that leads to Jesus. And so, as we look at the book of Ruth, we'll ask these two questions this morning. What is the original meaning? And how does this point to Jesus? So, let me recap the story, then we'll dig into a passage. Remember, the story of Ruth is really principally about a family. A family in the time of the judges who are going through deep famine, and the husband somehow, and for some reason, gets so angry with God that he takes his family and leaves Israel during a famine, not just to find food, but to reject God. He goes to live in the land of the Moabites, which were the great enemies of God. This was not just disillusionment. This was defection. This was, I've had it with God. And in Moab, sadly, tragic circumstances occur, and the husband and the two sons die, leaving Naomi, the mum, a widow, and her two daughters-in-law. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 6 as we read how Naomi responds to this tragedy. We read this last week, but we're going to go deeper into it this morning. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, And then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, If even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So last week we saw the two different ways in this passage of relating to disappointment with God. Naomi's husband leaves, abandons God, gives up on him. But Ruth, in her tragic circumstances and her disillusionment, even in her bitterness towards God, knows that the way of her husband doesn't lead to life. To abandon God never works out in the end. Even with short-term gain, it leads to long-term tragedy. And so we saw last week that the author repeatedly uses this word to turn throughout the first chapter, that Naomi turns back to God and how in our disappointment, even though we don't have all the answers, even though we're struggling with why God has allowed this, even though we're struggling in pain, she turns back to God. Fast forward a few chapters, only three other, only three other chapters, and in chapter four, if you've done your homework, you've read it this, this week, chapter four, she sees that Naomi's life's been turned around. That God has redeemed and restored and provided and protected her. That though she is distraught and diminished with no husband, with no economic future, with no provision, with no guardianship, in that land, in that time, with your family was your safety net. And yet in just a few short chapters, she'd gone from bitterness to beauty. From famine to feast. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, how does God redeem Ruth, Naomi? How does God change her life? How does God intervene? And this is a question which immediately draws us into a challenge because the author answers that question in a really unusual way. The author of the book of Ruth shows us that sometimes the provision, the redemption, The protection of God isn't through divine revelation, isn't through prophecy and vision, isn't through the so-called supernatural works that we see all over the rest of the Old Testament. Because in the book of Ruth, the author intentionally almost deletes God from the story on the surface. Ruth is one of those books, like the book of Esther, where God is hardly mentioned it seems that there's a very natural way of things. It seems that Naomi's life's been turned around. At the end, she says, God has redeemed my life. But we don't see divine interventions throughout the story. But that's the point. Because the book of Ruth is there to tell us that in Naomi's life, just like in your life, the primary way God wants. To grow you. The primary, primary way God wants to lead you. The primary way God wants to transform your life. Is not through divine encounter direct with him. It's through friends. Friends. How was Naomi's life turned around? It's because God worked through friendship. God worked through providing two people in her life in particular, Ruth, and then we'll come on to this other guy called Boaz next week, that God's plans and purposes for Naomi's life, God's plans and purposes for your life are primarily outworked through the friendships around you. This is the whole point of the book of Ruth. He emphasises that God wants to use people in your life rather than direct angelic visitations. So much so that he goes, look, well, I'm actually going to almost like delete the words God from this story so that I can emphasise the power of friendships in your life. You see, the author of Ruth is picking up on a great theme throughout the whole of Scripture, birthed in the very first chapter of Scripture, that God has ordered this world, he's ordered his will to be done, he's ordered his purposes to be outworked through people. Have you ever wondered what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about? I'm a scientific guy and I've really struggled with Genesis 1 and 2 for many years until I kind of dug into it a bit more and realised the literary masterpiece of Genesis 1 and 2. And actually what we see is the pattern of, of creation, the pattern of how we're to relate to God, the pattern of how God made us is described less scientifically but more theologically. And what we see right at the foundation of Genesis 1 is this amazing foundational truth that God brings his kingdom to bear in this world. He brings his goodness and his justice and his mercy and his healing into this world through people. We see this in that famous verse, Genesis one26 You'll know this verse, and it's on the screen here for you. It says, Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We've heard this many times and we see this interplay between God saying, let us make humans in our image so that they may do the things of God in the world, to rule, to reign, to flourish, to bring goodness. We often have thought of image as some kind of identity marker, that somehow we have characteristics that resemble God. And we argue for centuries, is it our consciousness? Is it our morality? Is it some kind of sense of conviction of right and wrong? Well, all of that is true, but it isn't really the preliminary main point. Because when Genesis 1 was written, the word image had a particular meaning. Let me explain what the word image meant in that context. In a pagan temple in this era, you'd have a space of God's so-called presence, a temple where you'd go and you'd be in the, a holy environment. And in that temple would be an image, a statue, an image of God. And that image would be so-called, uh, the image would mediate God's presence power, the divine essence, the divine presence to the people through an image. When you look at Genesis 1 and the literary masterpiece of what it is, you realize that the way Genesis 1 and 2 is written is a literary technique to describe all of creation like a temple, it's an outdoor garden temple. That there are are seraphim guarding the gates like in a temple, that over six days plus one the garden and creation was made like a temple was in later on, it was six days plus one. You'll see that actually what's going on here is Genesis 1 and 2 is the description of God's earth as his temple, a place where he would dwell and You ask, well, where's his image? Where's the image in the temple that would mediate his presence to the world, would mediate his power and his authority, would mediate his work of redemption and goodness? And then it's not some kind of statue, but that's why, shockingly, it says humanity is the image of God. So image is not some description of how you were made. Image is a description of why you were made. We are God's means of his kingdom in the world. Filled with his spirit, filled with his power, we are his agents in the world. That's why when we broke it and it all went badly wrong, you read Genesis 3 onwards, you see God's plan of restoration was not send angels, was not just turn up like Harry Potter and wave a wand. It was he chose Abraham because I've created this whole system to work by God using his image. We go on throughout the Old Testament, we see Moses, right? Even, even the miraculous acts of God that are beyond our ability still are through human agency. One of my favorite stories is Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and they go, oh my word, God, you've got to show up. You know, we know we we are your image, but we can't do this in our own strength. So God says, you're absolutely right. You're never supposed to do it in your own strength, but I will always use you. So Moses, divide the Red Sea. He says, look, when you raise your staff and your hand over the sea, it will be divided. Now there's nothing powerful in Moses' arm. But God was saying, this is how I've wired the world, that I will use people. Fast forward to our prayer ministry, even down here. We represent that great theology of the New Testament. When you pray, lay hands on people. Not that we can heal people, but as we lay hands, as we cooperate with God, his power comes through. This is the theme all the way through scripture. We often, I grew up in a context which is very Pentecostal, charismatic, which I love. But sometimes there was a step too far where we saw actually if God was really going to do something, he'd do it without people. Like the good stuff of God was miracles that people didn't get involved with. And yet what we see in scripture is the supernatural of God comes through the natural of people. We used to say things like, we should be a faceless army. It's all glory to God. and Actually, none of me but all of you, God. It's Actually, I love the heart of it, but it's terrible theology. Because God's going, no, I created you so that you would be my image, so that I could use you. You are very important in this whole story of redemption. God uses people. And what we see in the book of Ruth is this truth showcased and spotlighted, that Naomi's redemption from barrenness and bitterness to beauty and fullness was through the friendship of Ruth. God brings his faithfulness, his provision, his care, his protection into your life through friends. Through friends. I know in my own life, as I look over the twenty three years of my life, (laughs) every significant, every significant transformation in my life might have been helped by a book or helped by a sermon, helped by a podcast, helped by an experience, but on their own, they didn't change my life. It was them in the context of friends that God transformed my life. I also know on the other side of that, every time I don't have a friend in my life, I can have books, podcasts, church, And yet I'm slowly diminishing. Because God has wired us for us to know him and his power through friendship. N.T. Wright, great theologian, put it this way. The image of God is an angled mirror through which the stewardship, love and purposes of God can be reflected into the world. What we see here is Ruth is being an angled mirror of God's provision to Naomi. It's quite staggering, the faithfulness, the commitment, the friendship that Ruth showed to Naomi. In verse 16, just hear these words again. Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Do you see the faithfulness, the commitment, the loyalty, the empathy, the love that is being reflected like an angled mirror? From God through Ruth to Naomi. Ruth knew that Naomi, left to herself, had no chance. No chance of survival. She was too old to work in the fields. She was too old to get married. She had no children to support her and no land. Her deadbeat husband had already sold it. And yet here she was going, Well, what do I do? To help. Naomi, I'm going to have to leave my security, my community, my network, my comfort. As a Moabite, I'm going to be an immigrant in this land called Israel, and I'm going to be a hated immigrant. I'm going to be actually at risk of losing my own life. And why would I go? As an immigrant, normally we go to other lands to better ourselves, and yet I'm going to go to Israel, and I'm going to have a worse life if I go to Israel. But see, Ruth knew that if she didn't go, then Naomi wouldn't probably survive. And so Ruth, in a great act of friendship, emptied herself for the sake of Naomi. Ruth knew that if Naomi was to get her life back, then Ruth would have to throw hers away. She clings to Naomi. Naomi. And she says, look, whether you like it or not, you've got me till death. I'm not budging. God used friendship to change Naomi's life. And he will use friendship to change your life. One of my mentors by book, I've never met him, he's with the Lord now, John Wimber, said this. People come to church for many reasons, but they stay for only one, friends. That's not some kind of consumeristic defeatism. Uh, People just want friends, they don't want good sermon. No, he recognizes a a great theological truth all the way back in Genesis 1, through the book of Ruth, all the way to Jesus saying, friendship is the greenhouse in which your life will grow. Friendship. There's been times in my life that I've been, as I said before, full of friends and times I've had almost no friends. I remember during COVID, it was such a difficult season for friendship. And I could feel in all the political, emotional, spiritual, medical trauma, racial trauma going on at the time, I remember thinking, oh my word, I don't know who my friends are. And I remember in prayer, God saying, look, you need to reconnect with the Ruths in your life. That if you mess up, you're not going to get an email. That will call you out where you do need a challenge, but we'll be there through thick and thin. And so I reached out, actually. I remember it came to mind of five friends who went through seminary together. Seminary is just past the school. And I emailed them all and said, look, if you're anything like me, I didn't put it like this, but I could have, I need Ruth's in my life. I need friends. And so we, they all said, you know what, me too, me too, me too. And we all Zoomed every week. And through those Zooms, although they were inadequate and painfully annoying, I could start to feel God's provision to me as these other friends became an image of god to me we then said look we need to meet up zoom just does not cut it we need to meet up for a week because we're all over the world one's in melbourne one's in sydney one's in vancouver one's in new york one's in edinburgh so i said how on earth are we going to meet up so I said, look, let's try and meet up. Let's find the most convenient place just to meet up, wherever that is. It doesn't matter where it is. Let's just meet up. Don't care. It just so happens that the most convenient place is Hawaii. <laughs> and so every year, the week after Easter, Easter Monday, I fly out. And for a week, I sit with the roofs in my life. About five years ago, I went on a weekend kind of therapy, leadership, coaching weekend with a good friend of mine called Jim McNeish in the Highlands of Scotland. And I was expecting some kind of great insight, which he gave me. I was expecting, but I didn't expect it kind of this way. He, we talked for about a day. We went hiking in the Highlands together. Then we sat down. And he said, Gail, look, as you go through this journey, what you need most of all are friends. And interestingly, he said, you need four types of friends. I think Ruth gathers all of these up into one. But we rarely find that someone is everything to us. He said, you need four things. And he gave me th- these kind of words to think about. He said, everyone needs a king or a queen, a mentor, a warrior, and a friend. And he said to me, look, everyone needs a king or queen in their life. Someone who's going to ch- say, look, this is, you've got to do this. You know, you've got to do this. This is the way of God. I love you and I'm just going to be tough love on you for a minute and say, you need to do this. You know, people we trust to speak truth to us. Have you got a friend who speaks truth? Who's going to love you so much that they're going to risk their own friendship with you to speak truth? Then you need a mentor, someone who's going to help you get there. Someone who's going to be that sage and mentor in your life. Look, this is, this is wisdom of how to get there. Then you need a warrior. Someone who's going to come alongside you and say, come on, I'm in this with you. Don't give up. And then you need a friend. What he meant by that was someone who's just to sit with you and go, hey man, whether you make it or not, I'm here. I'm here. I love you. You cannot do anything to disappoint because, you know, we're all broken and we're in this together. Come here, have a hug. God mediates himself to us through friends. The challenge, of course, is we are in a crisis of friendship in this cultural moment. We are in a crisis of friendship in this cultural moment. There are oppositions to friendships I listed just a few here and it's a lack of a geographic workplace so we don't actually meet people during the week transience inner apparatus is not there we've been hurt before or shame or guilt that we retreat from people competitiveness so people are competitors not someone I can trust or open up to we're too busy traffic I just don't have time I don't want to get on the 405 and meet friends um, <laughs> relational hurt you know what people people suck you know I you know uh I don't like people. Digital isolationism, just on my phone all day. You know, We've got our headphones in. Um, lack of wisdom of, I don't know how to create friends anymore. I was never told how to create f- friends. Is it just I talk nonstop at people? Is that how you make friends? no um, uh, lack of friendship apparatus on and, on and on and on I remember saying to people before you know man I met this great person when I first came to LA and really connected and it was like oh we should hang out bro and he goes yeah no totally he said, he said where do you live I said oh, I'm in Santa Monica I said where do you live he said I'm in Glendale I just said to him oh bro see you in heaven <laughs> it's just like it's just not going to work So I'm going to end really practically, really practically, because I know we're in a crisis of friendship. I feel it, you feel it. And so I'm going to end really practically. I'm going to run through what I would go, I would just tips that have helped me cultivate roots in my life. Okay? Number one, pray. Pray. Lizzie and I prayed about three years ago for a couple who could be friends with us. I'm tearing up because they're here today. And we didn't know them at the time. And we want, Lord, we want friends to be like Ruth to us and we could be Ruth to them. And we prayed and we actually said, we have no idea, we've been here seven years, we have no idea where they're gonna come from. I can't look at them right now, but they're here. You know who you are. Ruth number one and Ruth number two. (laughs) But pray, God answers prayer. Number two, common interests. Friendship is always about something. Friendship is about something. So if you're looking for deep Ruths in your life, connect into the passions and stirrings that God has given to you and you'll find people along the way. C.S. Lewis was great at this. He said friendships are rarely found face-to-face where you just look at each other and go, can we be friends? (laughs) Friendship is shoulder-to-shoulder where you find yourself both doing something together and you're looking at something together and you both go, oh, you like that too? And of course, this is why Jesus is so wonderful because ultimately every social, racial, economic barrier is broken down because we look at each other as brothers and sisters and look at Jesus and go, you love Jesus too? But that's why at Vintage we we have, and I want to encourage you, we have friend groups. We call them friend groups for Pete's sake because we know that friendship. And the friendship groups on our website that Johnny curates are all around Yeah, I can find one that I have shared common interests with. We have activity groups, teams, courses. As you do things, as you pursue God and what he's got for you, you'll find that he brings people alongside like a Ruth. Naomi did not go out to Ruth and go, will you be my friend? They just found that life had brought them together as they pursued God together. Number three, reduce transience. Reduce transience. Uh, I've gone out of order for the people that slides at the back there, sorry. Just keeping it alive for you. (laughs) Reduce transience. Lizzie and I married in 2000. We were part of a wonderful community in London, but I got a new job and we moved straight away to Geneva, Switzerland. We started to make great friends. But in 2003, we left, and I went back to London, a different part of London, away from the community that we had before. Started a new church, started to build friends. But after a year, I felt God call us to ministry, and so we left everything uprooted and went to Vancouver, Canada. And we were there for three years and building great friends. But after three years... We moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I could start in ministry in the church there. And it was amazing, wonderful people, started to make friends. But after three years, God called us to Los Angeles. She knew and I knew that although this was obedience, we follow, as Christians, we just follow the cloud through the wilderness wherever it takes us. But we were praying, Lord, can the cloud just stop for a bit? And I think God's in that because we need friends, and friends is about constancy. And the challenge with today's international, transient, career-driven world is what you read in articles that a careered individual can wake up in their mid-40s with no friends at all because they've been hanging on for their family as they move around the world never actually cultivating friendship in any spiritual community. And they wake up and they're isolated and alone. So I just, we follow the cloud wherever it goes, but just make sure the cloud is leading you. Reduce transience, even in LA. You know what, if you're building friendships here, be careful about moving to Glendale. I love Glendale, right? i got friends in Glendale I will see one day. (laughs) But just be careful, because you can actually win short-term but lose long-term. Okay, number four are we? Stop running. Stop running. The shame and guilt and the insecurities that we have inside of us always are exposed by friendship. And whenever you experience that, you've got a choice on your hand. Do you dig in and actually wrestle through the friendship to health, or do you bounce and run? When we were expats in the corporate world, we used to call it, in just not a Christian way, we used to call it, oh, he's doing a geographic. Because you find these expats who, who kind of every two years are somewhere else, and you meet them, and you go, yep. He just bounces from place to place or bounce from relationship to relationship or bounce from church to church because we're running from the stuff that friends expose. Joseph Hellerman writes this in his great book When the Church Was a Family. There's a quote on the screen here. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. He's being hyperbolic, okay, but you get the point. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. The next one, create time. For many in the room here are going, oh my word, I got more to do now? I can hardly ever, I'm just literally trying to keep my marriage together, keep my kids from not hating me, and keep the bills being paid. You want me to do more? And this like, intentional relationship takes time I don't have. So here's the thing at Vintage. Whenever we invite you into something, we are not asking you to do more. We're actually inviting you to do less. Less of the things that you need to stop doing so that you can invest and reprioritize into things that are really healthy for you. Most of us would go, I just don't have time. I don't have time for friends. I'd love it, I just don't have time. So can I give you a little reading assignment on that, which I think is mandatory for everyone in this cultural moment? A friend of ours wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Homer. Read that book and save your life from things and distractions that actually ultimately are fruitless in your life. There's no way to cultivate friendship without time. Consistency. I'm gonna go every week to that friend group. I'm gonna go. And then finally, receive the true friend, the true Ruth just as we land the plane here. Remember at the very start I said every part of the Old Testament is doing two things. What does it mean in the original time and how does it point to Jesus? You see, if we just end the sermon with, okay, do better, go be a good friend, then we're setting ourselves up for failure because there's things in our life deep down that need healing. There's things that deep down need An intervention from God himself. That we might be healed on the inside, that we might be Ruth to others. I don't know about you, but I'm so insatiably wanting something that sometimes that is so broken in me, I can't be a friend to others. And what we see here is actually, we not only need Ruths, but we need some kind of divine Ruth someone who's going to do what a human friend can't do. We need an intervention from God himself. And this is where we see Ruth pointing forward to the true divine friend who can do what only he can do on the inside. And fast forward to the personal work of Jesus and we see that like Ruth, he left his comfort of his own home and his father. Like Ruth, he came as a cosmic immigrant to a land not his own where he would be rejected. Like Ruth, he saw you and me and knew that on our own we would not survive. Like Ruth, he knew that for us to survive would mean his own life. Like Ruth, he came to give his life as the ultimate friend. But he went further than Ruth in this one thing. Ruth said to Naomi, only death will part us, but he want, he, Jesus went one step further. I won't even let death part me from you. Jesus is the ultimate roof, that in order to be roof to others, we need to know the divine roof, Jesus Christ. And as He heals us, as He redeems us, on the inside, we may be roof to others. Here's my prayer for 2023 that vintage becomes a community of friends Let's stand together I've gone way over Parents, if you've got kids it'd be great if you could go get your kids while they're still alive or the the teachers are still alive That'd be great but we're going to have one worship song just to end and our prayer ministry team will be down here now. So let me pray and then we'll worship together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate friend, that you came to save us. But the way of your kingdom is, your transformation in our lives is through friends. Lord, we pray that we would be surrounded by Ruths in our lives, that we would pay the cost, the intentionality to cultivate that. And maybe now you've just been reminded to cultivate a friendship or maybe rekindle it. Or maybe you're here going, I don't have any friends, go. Jesus knows. And as you take a step, he'll meet you and provide people in your life. But Jesus, we worship you now as the ultimate friend. The one who will never let us go. The one who promised not even death will part us. The one who said, I will cling to you. Don't even try and push me away. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.